chapter 1000 of the Bible. It's an odd coincidence, but that chapter is also the most well-known chapter of the Bible. It contains the greatest verse in the Bible. Perhaps now you've guessed it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. John chapter 3 is chapter 1000 of Scripture. And what a marvellous chapter it is in this beautiful book. A little while ago we were speaking about the seven miracles in the most beautiful book in the world. You may remember we spoke about the miracle of the changing of the water into wine in John chapter 2 and the miracle of the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, and the healing of the man of Bethesda in John chapter 5, and the feeding of the hungry multitude in chapter 6, and the stilling of the storm in the same chapter, then the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, and the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. We pointed out that in these seven miracles, we saw the sufficiency of the Saviour over all the things that limit us, quality and quantity and time and space, natural law, accident, death. But every one of these miracles is also a miracle of transformation. Water to wine, a small boy's lunch transformed into a lunch for thousands of people, the dead transformed to life, Blindness transformed to sight. Danger transformed to safety. Health, a transformation from sickness. John's gospel is a gospel of transformation. And whatever you think may be your greatest need, may I venture to say, my friend, this is it transformation. If we have heard of Christ, heard of the judgment, heard of the forgiveness of sins, our great need is to receive these things. And in receiving them, transformation always follows. Just before chapter 1000 of the Bible, is the event of the cleansing of the temple. Let me read to you from John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and oxen out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Here Jesus transformed the temple scene. Men that were interested only in making money out of religion had defiled the temple, but Christ cleansed it. And that profaned tabernacle was all too true a picture of the natural human heart defiled by the things of sin. 
needing the cleansing presence of Christ. So what Christ acted out in cleansing the temple, he now teaches out in the next chapter, John 3. He's going to teach the necessity and the means and the fruit of transformation of life. Every human heart is designed to be a temple for God. But because of sin, that temple has become defiled and it cries out for cleansing. So let us look now at John chapter 3, chapter 1000 of Holy Writ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. This is the first time in the chapter where the word must occurs. Ye must be born anew. Or as some translations give it, you must be born again. Notice to whom Jesus says it. He's saying it to Nicodemus. Not Mary Magdalene. Not some chiseler like Zacchaeus. Not even to Judas, but he's saying it to a man who was apparently a paragon of virtue, a Pharisee. They were very strict in ways of righteousness, the best of them, and this was the best of them. Jesus calls him in the same chapter the teacher of Israel. So to this teacher of Israel, Jesus says, you must be born again. And that's frightening. You and I wouldn't have been scared if he said it to Mary Magdalene or to Zacchaeus. We would have said, yes, they need to be born again. But he says it to a man whose life is apparently spotless. This man was no alcoholic. This man was no thief. This man was not a blasphemer or an atheist. This man was not a thief or a pervert. This man was a religious man. He went to church and synagogue or temple, Sabbath by Sabbath. He paid tithes of all that he possessed. He fasted and prayed often. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Often in scripture, we come across a red light like this. Let me tell you another one. In Luke 13 and verse 3, it says, except ye repent, ye shall all perish. In John chapter 6, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. And he explained it by saying, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Then in John chapter 8, except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. These things are not trivial, my friends. These are the musts of God. Ye must be born again. Ye must. It was Wesley who preached so often on this text that someone said, why do you always preach on the text, ye must be born again? And Wesley replied, because ye must. To be born only once is to die twice. To be born twice 
means only to die once, if at all, for Jesus may come in our lifetime. But born once, die twice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 46, we read that that which is first is not spiritual, but natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. The Bible gives us many illustrations of this. Think of the first two boys ever mentioned in the Bible, Cain and Abel. The first was natural, carnal, profane. The second, Abel, spiritual. Think of the sons of Isaac, Esau and Jacob. The first was carnal, profane, natural. The second, oh, born the same way, but he became spiritual, gracious, believing, obedient. Think of the first two generations of Israel. The first generation was a stubborn and stiff-necked generation. They perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief and their disobedience. But the second generation, that generation that by faith stepped into the flooding waters of Jordan, that generation that gave the shout of faith in order to see the walls of Jericho topple, that generation, by contrast with the first, was spiritual. Remember the text? 1 Corinthians 15:46. that which is first is not spiritual, but natural. Afterwards, that which is spiritual. Remember the first two kings of Israel. Saul, outwardly, very attractive. Head and shoulders above other men. Very talented, very gifted. Handsome, strong, but natural. Then came David. He was the spiritual one. A man after God's own heart. So the Bible is telling us in all these symbolic pictures that our firstborn temperament and nature is not good enough, my friends. We all need changing. We need transforming. The temple of God, our hearts, our minds have become defiled. We have polluted our minds and our hearts by loving the wrong things. You must be born again however respectable, however upright, however apparently impeccable, ye must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not he will not, he cannot. Now I want to point you to the second time in this chapter where we find the word must. Let's read the story on. I'm in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now here is the second must in chapter 1000 of the Bible. The first one was, ye must be born again. The second one tells us how. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man 
be lifted up. You see, Nicodemus couldn't understand it either. And Jesus, first of all, gave him an illustration from the wind. We read it a moment ago. The wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it. You don't know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. The wind is heard among the branches of the trees. It rustles the leaves and the flowers, but it's invisible. No man knows whence it comes or whither it goes. And that's the way it is with the work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. It can no more be explained than can the movements of the wind. A person may not be able to tell the exact time or place or trace all the circumstances in the process of conversion. That doesn't prove him to be unconverted. By an agency as unseen as the wind, Christ is constantly working upon the heart. Little by little, perhaps unconsciously to the receiver, impressions are made that tend to draw the soul to Christ. These may be received through meditating upon him, through reading the scriptures, or through hearing the word from the living preacher now. Suddenly as the spirit comes with more direct appeal the soul gladly surrenders itself to Jesus. Many call this sudden conversion but it's the result of long wooing by the wind of God, the spirit of God. It's a patient protracted process. While the wind is itself invisible it produces effects that are seen and felt and so the work of the spirit upon the soul will reveal itself in every act of him who has felt its saving power. When the Spirit of God takes possession of the heart, it transforms the life. Sinful thoughts are put away. Evil deeds are renounced. Love, humility and peace take the place of anger, envy, strife. Joy takes the place of sadness and the face reflects the light of heaven. No one sees the hand that lifts the burden or beholds the light descend from the courts above. The blessing comes when by faith the soul surrenders itself to God then that power which no human eye can see creates a new being in the image of God. But we haven't told you all. What did Jesus mean when he said the Son of Man must be lifted up? My friends, the Spirit never works apart from the cross of Calvary. And Jesus in this second must is alluding to his coming cross. But he's doing more than that. To illustrate his point, he's referring Nicodemus back to an incident he knew well. Now when the Israelites were grumbling on their desert way, God, to distract their thoughts, permitted venomous snakes to appear among them. Soon the grumbling, ungrateful host lay struggling on the ground, striving with death itself. And as Moses cried out to God, God gave him a remedy. The people had grumbled and showed their unbelief. Now they must be healed, and they could be healed by faith alone. So Moses was told to make a a molten snake and put it on a banner staff like a cross twirled around its arms. And then the proclamation went forth that whoever looked upon that, that snake on the banner staff, they would be healed. Of course, some just jeered and laughed and died. Others looked and lived. And Jesus is saying that we've all been bitten by that old serpent called the devil and Satan. We all have the virus of sin in our spiritual blood. We are all dying people in the desert of this world. But God has raised a banner star, the cross. And he's put on that cross a serpent? A serpent? It wasn't a lamb. 
but it was the Son of God. My friends, God made him to be sin for us. Christ was treated as though he were the devil. That we who've been bitten by the devil might live. It tells us in the book of Galatians and the third chapter that Christ was made a curse for us. Paul tells us there in chapter 3 of Galatians in verses 10 onward that no one can ever be made right by doing what the law requires. For the law requires perfect fulfilment, practical fulfilment, personal fulfilment, perpetual fulfilment, curses everyone that continueth not in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. That's the warning to all who seek salvation by works. They are cursed. Everyone that continues not to do everything in the book of the law. My friends, we are all cursed. Well, we're all legalists, we're all Pharisees, we all think we're pretty good and that God ought to open up heaven to us. We think our virtue lies in the fact that there are many things we haven't done that we were tempted to do, but that would be an empty virtue. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When we see our lost estate, that we, like the Israelites of old, having been bitten by the serpent, are dying because of our unbelief and our grumbling. Then when we see that one took our place and was made a curse for us, when we see that one was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, when we see that and look, then we live. No one can really love Christ till he sees that Christ loved him. Our very first duty is adoration. Behold the cross of Christ. My friend, true religion is not just church going or Bible reading or praying. True religion is looking intently at the cross of Christ, the monument of God's love, the only lever that can raise up the world, the place where God took our place, who stood in our stead, Besieged by all the demons of hell, trying to persuade him to come down. He saved others. Himself he cannot save, cried the crowd. It was true, my friends, and yet it was untrue. He could have saved himself, but no, he couldn't, because his nature is love. And he was there because he loved us. The Bible says he loved us and gave himself for us. It's not enough to believe, as the 16th verse of this chapter tells us, that God so loved the world. It's not enough to believe what the book of Ephesians tells us, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's only enough to believe that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. So the following verse, my friends, is the most famous verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the greatest verse because it's about the greatest person, God. Doing the greatest thing, loving. 
loving the greatest number, the world, giving the greatest evidence of love, giving, giving the greatest gift, his only son, with the greatest invitation, whosoever. You don't send out your invitations to parties like that, whosoever. And the greatest simplicity of condition, whoever believes in him, is saved from the greatest fate, should not perish. Without Christ we perish. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. You can never perish while trusting in the merits of Christ, while believing that he took your place on the cross. But if you believe that, you'll be transformed. Not perish, but have the greatest reward, eternal life. So there's the greatest text of the Bible, my friends, in chapter 1000, about the greatest person doing the greatest thing, loving the greatest number, giving the greatest gift, giving the greatest invitation with the greatest simplicity to save us from the greatest fate and to receive the greatest reward. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Calvary reveals the love of God as nothing else does. Behold him there, my friends, stripped naked because we're naked as regards righteousness. See his hands and feet pierced because the wrong things our hands have done and the wrong places our feet have led us. See his brow crowned with thorns because of the wrong thoughts we have thought, thoughts of impurity and hatred and envy and jealousy and pride and lust. His brow was pierced because of those thoughts. And that back beaten to pulp by the Roman lash, our backs have borne so many idols, they deserve to be beaten. And his side was pierced, that side by his heart, because we've loved so many false gods. My friends, when we see the love of Christ for us, then we love him too. And then we've been born again then we have eternal life. As soon as we believe, we receive. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believed on his name. That's John 1.12. Receiving is believing, and believing is receiving. And to believe that Christ loved us personally, to die for us, is to receive eternal life. It brings transformation of life. The sky is bluer, the grass is greener. People are different because life is different, because we are different, because we found that God is different to what we thought. He's so much better than we've ever dared to hope, though we are so much worse than we ever suspected. Now, there's one other place, my friends, in this chapter where the word must is used, to which I draw your attention. When the people came to John, John the Baptist, and told him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Ah. There's the third must. He must be born again. That's the must of God's demand. Life's demand. Heaven's demand. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's the must of the how, the means, the method. 
and they are the must of the fruit or the consequence. He must increase, but I must decrease. That, my friends, is the rule for one who's become transformed. Jesus becomes more and more and self becomes less and less. We're all so naturally selfish, so very self-centred. We love ourselves continuously, unendingly, perseveringly, despite our mistakes and failures. But now, Christ begins to increase and self begins to decrease. This is what theologians call sanctification. But what it means in a nutshell is we become more and more like him whom we adore. We want to be like Jesus, to love like him, to serve like him, to sympathise like him, to give like him. He must increase, but I must decrease. So there it is, my friends, in this most beautiful book in the world in chapter 1000, a chapter that calls for transformation of life, but tells us how only it can be done by looking to Jesus. When we believe that he loved us like that, enough to die for us, then, my friends, we are born again. Eternal life is ours, and all is different. Will you not look today, look at that Christ, see that he was there in your place. See, believe, receive. Rejoice and live forevermore. May it be so for you, my friend. God bless you.